0: You are now listening to The Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, Politics Editor for The Griot and Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of the blackest questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us like history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. And after the five questions, There's a Black bonus round at the end just for fun, and I like to call it Black Lightning. Our guest for this episode is organizer and creator Richard Brookshire. Richard is the co-founder of the Black Veterans Project. As a storyteller, Richard leverages a background in political communications, integrated marketing, digital advocacy, and documentary filmmaking to deliver strategic and dynamic social impact campaigns. He's previously served as Director of Communications for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and was the first person of color to lead political communications at the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's preeminent LGBTQ plus civil rights organization. Richard is an alum of Columbia University and Morehouse College and Fordham University and is a former infantry combat medic and U.S. Army veteran of the war in Afghanistan. His work has been highlighted by The New York Times, USA Today, Reuters, The Washington Post, BBC, CNN, The Root, and many others. I am so excited to welcome Richard Brookshire to The Blackest Questions. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Hey. (laughs) You you made me
0: sound like a big deal, Emma.
1: You're a huge deal. (laughs) You're a huge deal to me for a host of reasons. One, I don't know if our listeners know this, but Richard is my former student. Two, Richard is my only student who's a double Greer in that you are my student at Fordham and you're also my student at Columbia University at SEPA. At so I can, bl- of I can blame Public you Affairs. for all the, good and the, like, all the just, good and the bad. All the good and the bad. All the <laughs> good and the bad. I am so incredibly proud of you to say, I mean, the least, because when I met you, you had lots of ideas. I remember you worked on this amazing paper about Eldridge Cleaver. And then over the years, you've made documentary films. And then you you co-founded this amazing organization on the Black Veterans Project. Can you tell our listeners about this organization and why you started it and the necessity for it today?
0: Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, I w- a lot of this work would not have been possible without your mentorship, your guidance, your love and support. So I'm gonna shout that out first, but um, I, Black Veterans Project was born out of my own experience, right? As a black vet, I served for seven years. I was a combat medic. Um, made a transition out of graduate school, and on paper, folks were like, you know, this—he's killing it, right? But internally I was not. <laughs> I don't think I had checked in with myself for like a good decade by the time I graduated from SEPA. And it was at the outset of Trump becoming president, um, a, a shifting kind of racial landscape in this country with the rise of Black Lives Matter, and a real like interrogation for me about like where do I fit in all of this? Right. How can I do work that, that is of substance and is of value? Um, and so long story short, I struggled with my mental health and trying to figure that out and ended up almost homeless if it wasn't for my mother moving to New York. Um Um, and and getting a tiny apartment in Brooklyn to help rehabilitate me after a suicide attempt. And it was just so happens that when I was in the psych ward, there was a book that I read called When Affirmative Action Was White. And it's a book by Ira Katz Nelson, a historian out of Columbia. And he uh had two chapters dedicated to uh the GI Bill. And the GI Bill was a humongous social welfare program instituted right d- directly following World War II that afforded many Americans pathways to the middle class for the first time, right? Like, so like how a, a zero via back home loan enabled most working class people to be able, you know, a lot of working class pe- uh, people rather, uh, uh the access to buy a home for the first time for their families and build jobs generational wealth, access to uh, money to go to college for the first time um and so i had just come out of studying at cepa where i was uh, 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 had a good grounding in how uh, kind of the great migration the, the 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 development of american cities the industrialization the fall of american cities and the eventual rise and so in pu- putting that in context wanting to understand that i was part of a legacy of black vets that came went to war came back struggled because they didn't have access to their benefits and you know were also trying to struggle stru- struggling to find a place in society And so I realized that this story that I was experiencing and that I was reading about in different books, I couldn't find anything about it online, you know? Mm -hmm. And my generation was different from the older generations who had spaces to congregate. All we really had was the internet because there was a lot few of us. There were way way less of us than there used to be by way of black folk who, um, who are serving in these conflicts. And so long story short, there was a a recognition that you know there was a, a space to tell the broader story of the Black veteran experience relative to race in America, both historically, but also get a better grounding in what was happening around race in the military today, like the the general statistics, um, veteran advocacy around access to to benefits today. And so we've done a lot just with that thesis, right? So the last four years, we've organized a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. We've gotten connected to most Black veteran organizations across the country. We've had some semblance of a relationship or touch point with, Um, and we um, started a research research project with Yale Law School's Veterans Legal Services Clinic, where we studied just the last 20 years disparities with respect to um, disability allocation and were able to to show that there were still systemic and widespread disparities affecting Black vets even today with with respect to like access to disability compensation, which which is an economic support mechanism that so many rely on for like stability, especially when they make transition, right? And then under, wanting to then marry that to a longer legacy of benefit obstruction, whether it be around the GI Bill or whether it be around the ways in which Black vets were conscripted from inner cities in Vietnam and then mm-hmm. stripped of their benefits and, and, th- and they came back. And that story has never really been told in totality, right? And like wanting to, 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 to show how that shifting relationship uh, of Black America with the military is in some, in, in, in many respects, still, there's still some tension there. Um, so yeah, the, the the project works with a lot of media partners, and we have some really cool uh, academic partnerships to help foster and amplify research in this area, and that's that's what we've been doing. And organizing a little bit on the hill around one specific piece of legislation that I can talk about later.
1: Well, fun fact: I was Ira Nelson's research assistant for when affirmative action was white. Oh, <laughs> when I was in graduate. Know that. Okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's all full circle. But you know, I'll never forget we were having a conversation years ago, and you said that you know you met a young. Uh, a young serviceman just, you know, out at a restaurant and you were chatting and he wasn't even aware of some of the benefits that he was eligible yeah. for, for education. And you were essentially, I think this is before you fully formed the project, when you were saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you're in the, the armed services, but you don't even know that you're entitled to all yeah. these real benefits that other folks were being recruited being promised these benefits and that's part of the reason why they were signing up this right. guy signed up not even knowing that you know he could get a uh, college tuition remission and 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 move forward with his educational pursuits once he leaves the service or even while he was in the service
0: yeah i think it's what we've been able to bear out through our 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 research too is that like you know, how racism and discrimination can show up or the disparities can manifest are manifold, right? It's not just only nefarious discriminatory intent. It is also what is left unsaid, what is left unshared, what is left unmentored in a a young person making a transition who might not know and uh, be able to access or be intimidated by trying to navigate the bureaucracies of the VA. And there are real economic and social consequences when you don't, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Especially for those that struggle in transition. And suffice that to say, like there is a, a more recent study that's actually forthcoming. It should be published in the next couple of weeks. But it basically has shown that uh, over the last five years, just the last five years, in the military, Black folk are still highly disproportionate in the number of dishonorable discharges that are actually happening mm. so what that means that you get you don't get an honorable discharge, you don't get access to this large social welfare system and that's really what we're talking about because i think that a lot of folks uh, can kind of be like oh i'm not a vet or i'm not related to that so this conversation doesn't inform me and in some ways it doesn't maybe but in some ways it does because one of the things that all americans are fighting for are access to, to some so, some level of social safety net around education, around housing, around healthcare, right? Well, you're supposed to be able to get afforded that if you if you serve, but there is a history in this country of stripping the black folks that serve of access to this social welfare apparatus that is then used to like solidify and or hopefully a, allow you a pathway to the American middle class, right? Right. And so I'm I'm interested in in studying uh, more of that and parsing that out, but. To your point, I come across it every day, you know, and I've experienced it myself, you know, so.
1: Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so thankful for your service and- I'm super thankful that you're joining us today on The Blackest Questions. Are you yeah, ready I'm to get started? Hard. I'm uh, like... <laughs> listen, you know, and and as my listeners know, um, I I was on my my Grio sibling, Panama Jackson's podcast, Dear Culture, and he turned the tables and I played The Blackest Questions and I was 0 for 2. So this is an opportunity for us to just celebrate Black people. Black history is American history and we go from there, right? And so we'll learn a little bit together. So are you ready for the first question? Yes. Okay. A pioneer in the field of neurosurgery. He was a candidate for president of the United States in the 2016 Republican primary. Ben Carson. That is correct. So Benjamin (laughs) Solomon Carson was born in Detroit, Michigan on September 18th, 1951. And when Carson was eight years old, his parents divorced and his father, Robert Carson a Baptist minister and factory worker left Detroit leaving the family in financial ruin. Hmm. Carson and his older brother, Curtis were raised by their mother who earned a living doing domestic work. Carson then studied psychology at Yale University and graduated in 1973, and then he attended the University of Michigan Medical School. So on May 3rd, 2015, Carson announced his bid for the presidency a day before his scheduled campaign kickoff in Detroit, Michigan. He suspended his campaign for president on March 4th, 2016, at the conservative political action committee we know that as cpac and carson failed to win any of the 11 states holding the presidential primary elections for the republican nomination so i i brought up ben carson because uh, you also have a medical background you are a medical uh, professional background as a combat medic specialist and you administered emergency medical care in the field in both combat and humanitarian situations and both of your parents i'm told completed military service so what? prompted you to join the military and did you choose uh, becoming a combat medic specialist or was it chosen for you
0: right well one uh, shout out to you being inclusive uh shout out to Ben Carson and then the <laughs> second thing is um uh I mean I think that so uh, another thing that I think can happen oftentimes to folks who don't know I mean I I, I have both family members who both my mom and my dad who served in the military but I was estranged from my father my mother did not want me to join so right so I didn't have that to lean on um really for any kind of mentorship when I was trying to sign up but long story short um I wasn't able to get the job that I wanted and not because I was denied anything but, but because I was discouraged right like I wanted to go into the military to do psych ops like I really you know I just was fascinated by 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 one the ability of psych ops to impact political condition and like political thought um, but also just you know it was something that sounded fun and um, that, that I could build a career on potentially long story short they basically were like well you had got a little bit of student loans I'd t- taken out a small loan when I was at Morehouse because I had a full academic scholarship so I didn't have that much loans but I had um, some some loans from when I attended Morehouse um, that I would uh, and they were like well you're not going to b- be able to get the security clearance because you have loans that are unpaid like a uh, student loans that are unpaid so I was like okay um, so what jobs are available and most of them, um, the two that I kind of almost settled on were either being like a, like a, a paper pusher, helping JAG officers, essentially like a, an attorney or a paralegal, basically, in the military, or being a combat medic. And I knew the, for me, the guiding light was whatever I do, I want to make sure that I'm helping people. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think because I had a West Indian mom who was a nurse- she was like, medical training, you know, become a nurse and then go find stability. Like she's, she's right. always like, you know, do the, do the right. practical thing, get a law degree and then go figure out what you want to do with your life. Like, it's just kind of that. So I, I ended up choosing that. Um, for whatever reason, I mean, I'm happy that I don't want to say I'm happy. That feels like a gross, gross overstatement of my feeling, but like I, um, it happened. I was a, a combat medic for seven years. It was quite good at it, but I, it wasn't something that I was, um, necessarily passionate. I think what passionate about, I really was passionate about making sure that I helped people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what brought me to the work, but like, you know, the mechanics of the body, um, and just the kind of folks that were attracted to that kind of work.
1: I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> and you didn't, um, you didn't, use that as a launch pad to want to go to medical school uh no
0: i knew pretty right away that like i i don't want to be in medicine but here here i'm i'm kind of not necessarily stuck, but like I couldn't switch my job. I'd started, right? So unfortunately that's just how the military works. And, but there were all the other, you know, we're at a time of war. So like the other job that just wasn't interested in. And so it was unfortunate that I didn't get the the psychops uh, position, but I'll say, this is what, what where, I, where I think a lot of discrimination can happen sometimes unknowingly or sometimes deliberately. Um, you know, I got my security clearance as soon as I got to my first duty station because I had to handle medical records. So, wow. I, you know, at the end of the day, it was a uh, something that the the recruiter shouldn't have done to discourage me from even applying or attempting, right? And so, you have this overrepresentation of Black folk. Um, in service oriented roles that are is like a maintenance of, 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 a, of a, co- a kind of codified law where black folk couldn't be in the infantry units where they would get promoted and be able to become higher ranking officials you, you black folk aren't told about you know being able to go to the west points of the world or the mm-hmm. Annapolis of the world and so again back to what we're not told what's not shared or what we're discouraged from trying to do right right and how i could have had a completely different military career if i would have just Either one had a black recruiter or two, um, uh uh wasn't discouraged from at least attempting because I, right. you know, I was being stifled in some respects by someone who probably didn't think that I that I deserved to have such a cool job. I don't know what their intent was, but I don't think it was because they thought I wasn't gonna get a security clearance in hindsight.
1: Exactly. So. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna learn so much today. And I know our listeners are on the edge of their seats. Uh we're talking to Richard Brookshire, the co-founder of the Black Veterans Project, and we'll be right back. And we're back, and you're listening to the Blackest Questions. I'm here with Richard Brookshire. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Are you ready for question number two? Yes. Okay. Question number two: The world's most widely spoken Creole language belongs to what country? Haiti. (laughs) All right. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Haitian. I was about to say, if you don't get this one, I will come through the screen.
0: Louisiana.
1: Right. (laughs) So Haitian Creole commonly referred to simply as Creole uh, in the Creole language is a French-based Creole language spoken by 10 to 12 million people worldwide and is one of the two official languages of Haiti, the other being French, where it is the native language of a majority of the population. And the language emerged from contact between French settlers and enslaved Africans during the Atlantic slave trade in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, now Haiti, the 17th and 18th centuries and although its vocabulary largely derives from 18th century french its grammar is that of west african volta congo language branch particularly the fong language and Ebo language it also has influences from spanish english portuguese taino and other west african languages and haitian creole is spoken in regions that have received migration from haiti including other caribbean islands french guyana france canada particularly quebec and the united states so Uh, Our listeners don't know this, but um, I have been to both of Richard's graduations from Fordham University and from Columbia University, and I am that person that comes and all I want to do is eat all of the Haitian rice. I was trying to have conversations with family and friends, but all I did was walk around with my multiple plates of rice. I don't even need anything else besides my rice and beans. Um, But do you have an elementary understanding of of, uh, French and Creole? And, you know, do you speak it often in your family?
0: I don't actually. I mean, I well, I do have an elementary understanding of Creole. Uh, So I lived in Haiti for a brief period when I was in elementary school. Um, If if it wasn't for the overthrow of um, Ice Steed, who was the first democratically elected president of Haiti, I would have gone to school there and received all my primary education there. But my mom ended up pulling me out and um, sending me back to Florida um, when... You know, essentially, all the, the the signs were there that he was about to be overthrown. So mm-hmm. I um, you know, I I spoke it then, and I, it's funny, but with French, I had French tutors since I was small. Went all the way to AP French in high school. I think uh-huh. I got my college credit. Still can't speak a lick. I just I just I can't. I couldn't tell you. I can read a little bit, you know. I just um, I just I I never used it right. Um, and and in part because I think there was one. Well, I have always been a little bit of a rebel, and when I was. No. Um, <laughs> when i was living in when i was living in haiti um you know you, you speak french at school like it's what's codified and you know hey, creole becoming an official language of haiti is only more recent right it's mm-hmm. always been kind of looked down upon class is a real thing in any country but in haiti it's very stark um and you know the upper class the yeah. uh mulatto class or whatever you know however they want to qualify them themselves um uh, of which my family was a part like you look down on folks that spoke Creole, right? We spoke mm-hmm. Creole it might be amongst each other when we are out in public. You're speaking French or whatever. So I always rebelled and just wanted to speak Creole. Like it was one, it was just easier, and it felt like there were less rules. You know, you could just right. learn and and, and communicate. <laughs> Where in French, it was like thirty different ways to say the same thing, uh, depending on you know what the object was. And it was just confusing. There's too many rules, and so I rebelled against it. You, um, but all yeah. I
1: know is all I know is sac passé.
0: That's good. Boule, you know whatever. That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. I know that there's there's quite a bit of political unrest taking place in Haiti right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of conversation about US military intervention. Now, as someone who identifies as Haitian and someone who is also a US veteran, how are you kind of negotiating those two spaces?
0: Mm. It's so funny you say that because my mom was actually visiting over the weekend and I um it could be kind of touching base on what kind of what's happening in Haiti but for the most part so many folks that I know and love most of my family has left right and so there's Mm. this kind of like ongoing tension about what's the future of the country and what you know what and every time I've been wanting to go back for almost a decade now it's like every single time I you know even think about trying to go back I'm just highly discouraged from doing so which is which is deeply unfortunate for me and I think that um, and, and for, you know, the, my, my future nephews and, you know, my nieces and, and all of those that might not be able to interface with Haiti in the same way that I did as a child, because I have such fond memories of the country. Um, but yeah, the political situation in Haiti is very complicated and, and very real. And ultimately, American intervention has always proven to not be the right answer. You know, you know, ultimately. And I think that just as America went through its own civil wars and had self, self-determined, I think that we need to allow a country like Haiti to self-determine. I think there's been too many times where American intervention, um, because of their own socio-political interests, has borne out a lot of blowback right and a lot of negative consequences um for the folks that have to stay in that island and deal with the political precariousness or the corruption or the uh or the um the lack of real movement toward change because america american interests or western interests think that haiti should be operating in a particular way right and they're going to leverage all of of what the, the, their 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 powers to ensure that it does you know fit into this global schema that we have in a very particular way. And I don't think we can also like ignore that America has always played a role to undermine kind of self-determination in Haiti from the outset of the revolutions uh, around the early 1800s and to its independence in 1804, uh, all the way to the American intervention in um, uh, uh, in the 1920s, you know, one of the, one of the longest, wars or occupations in american history was in haiti and how that destabilized uh uh, the country for generations on top of what france has done right Right. and you know even thinking about what happened with the fall of duvalier when you had duvalier was a haitian dictator was a long-serving dictator him and his son uh ruled over the country for uh, over 30 years um, that's really when my, you know, my family's relationship uh, changed with the country. My, my grandmother fled to the United States in 1969, would go back, and and obviously, uh, uh, after the, the Duvalier regime had fallen. Um, but uh, long story short, my mom, my mom grew up under the Duvalier regime. She went to boarding school in Haiti, um, and she says it's when the country was probably the most stable, you know, uh, unfortunately. And then you had ISD, when ISD, you know, was a democratically elected president, and then, you know, you have entrenched political interests in the West that that look at him as a problem figure because he's asking for reparations when, you know, um, Haiti expended so much of its of its GDP for the first hundred years of its existence on Paying back this reparations to France, um, and then you have tariffs that are being used, all these different types of um, economic uh, sanctions being used to cripple the Haitian economy. So it's just that every I say all that to say that it's complicated, and and obviously I've not stated you know all of the facts, but um, these facts are should be heavily considered when we think about American intervention, um, and and also just the 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 way in which the Haitian people, especially uh, the folks that that I know, kind of view. American hegemony and view mm-hmm. American intervention as something that they did, that they don't want. Right. Um, so, so, yeah.
1: I would love to hear you in conversation with folks from Puerto Rico as well, because there's so mm. many similarities. Uh, there's some stark differences obviously, but there are a lot of similarities about American intervention economics being at the root of all this and obviously the military too. We're gonna take a quick break and coming back, we will uh, continue our conversation with Richard Brookshire on The Blackest Questions. Okay, we're back and we are playing the blackest questions with Richard Brookshire co founder of the black veterans project Richard thank you so much for being here. Um, I love our conversations. um, And I'm so like thankful that I've had so many years of being a mentor and friend, uh, and now I get to learn from you uh, in a host of ways. Okay, so are you ready for question number three. Yes. Okay. Known as the father of ice cream. This African-American Philadelphian had done for ice cream what Henry Ford had done for cars. He did not invent ice cream, but invented a way to make it last long enough to be shipped and sold. Who was he? I have no idea. Ben Jerry. Ben and Jerry? Ben and Jerry. <laughs> They're from Vermont. <laughs> this is... Augustus Jackson, Augustus Jackson was born April 16th in 1808 and was an African-American ice cream maker and confectioner from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Augustus was a free black man who moved to Philadelphia when he was freed and started making his ice cream on Goodwater Street. Jackson served as a chef in the White House during the 1820s uh, and he died January 11th in 1852. So with African-American studies degrees uh, from Morehouse, Uh, you studied obviously race and politics with me uh, at various institutions. Uh, Do you dabble in ever trying to learn a little bit more about black inventors Uh, Mm. and and sort of, when you're reading books, I I think this is my question. When you're trying to learn a a bit more not just about black history, but black diasporic history, what are you drawn to?
0: That's a good question. I would say I probably don't look at black inventors as much, but I think one thing that I'm super drawn to is the relationship between in history between black America and the American military because I think it says so much about history, it says so much about Economic structures. It says so much about power. It says so much about race. It says so much about the distribution of resources, the social social welfare systems. It says so much about gen, you know generational wealth. It says so much about. It's such a commentary on the evolution of slavery and indentured servitude. It's. I mean, it, I mean, like there's just so much there. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of spend so much of my time reading about like the history between in the, the relationship between the American military. And, um, and black America, like really. And then I, I sometimes dabble in like a little bit of uh, 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 history with respect to the military and um, interventions across the world um, in global conflicts. And then kind of, I'm also, I guess m- even more interested in some respects in like empire <laughs> and like it mm-hmm. uh, propagates yeah. itself and the different kind of uh, uh, spheres of empire and influence um, and its implications I think for black folk as well.
1: Uh, so, I and mean, for me, as someone who loves to travel internationally, I always think about Black servicemen who have traveled the world essentially mm. as ambassadors for America, mm. and they were oftentimes treated, and sometimes in certain cases still treated, better abroad than they are in their own nation wearing a uniform defending the American empire. You know, mm. I always think about uh, there's a great short black and white film by Melvin Van Peebles called Three Day Pass, uh, mm-hmm. that he did mm-hmm. in the sixties about a black serviceman who's in France and has a three-day vacation pass and he, you know, he goes off and, and falls in love. But this idea that black men and women, you know, traveled abroad to represent a nation that really struggled with any sort of respect for them uh, mm-hmm. and equitable treatment, I'm, I'm still mm-hmm. trying to negotiate and process that. And as I read, you know, some of the work that the Black Veterans Project is doing, I'm still trying to have a, a conversation about that because I, I've had, you know, family members—no direct family members—some uncles, great uncles who were in the Air Force, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was the the blackest of the armed forces. Uh, I didn't realize that that's one of the least integrated, but everyone mm-hmm. in my family was in the Air Force. Uh My aunt and uncle were in the Air Force. So I just thought that that's where all the Black people went. And mm-hmm. that is not true.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, not true in a lot of ways. I mean, both historically and like present day. I mean, also as the military, the, in the, the Air Force is probably some of the starkest numbers around racial disparities with respect to discipline, with respect to discharges mm-hmm. um for African-Americans, even though, you know, they, 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 quantify a small number. I think the Navy is, I want to say the Navy is the first or the Army Navy is de- are definitely top two. Um, and they're bigger forces. So, I mean, I think that that's, that, that's too, you know, to, to, to be expected, but also like black, you know, the air forces is, is, you know, there's a book actually, I, let me pull it up. Hold on. I'm gonna just give it a shout out because I'm partnering with them. <laughs> Matthew Delmont's Half American. No, there's this book called Half American by Matthew Delmont. It actually just came out today. And um, there's a chapter it talks about um, during World War II, how, uh, how the, the Tuskegee Institute became this kind of bastion of possibility for Black Americans to potentially get into aviation, but there was so there were so many barriers and you know, and it wasn't until the Tuskegee Airmen and, and it was just like kind of laying out a lot of that history and that, that's still born today. You, you, you just do not see as many Black fighter pilots. You don't see as many Black folk in like elite specialty roles in the military broadly, right? Um, and there are many, many, many reasons for that.
1: We're going to move on and take a quick commercial break. And then when we come back, we'll continue playing The Blackest Questions with Richard Brookshire. Okay, we're back. We're playing The Blackest Questions. Richard, are you ready for question number four? Yes. Okay. He was the second Black playwright to win the award and later adapted the play into an Oscar-nominated film, A Soldier's Story. Yes.
0: I should know this because we partnered with them for the Broadway play, give out tickets. Um oh uh, he died this past year. Um I'm not even gonna lie. I was gonna say Richard Wright, but I know that's not right.
1: The Charles <laughs> Fuller.
0: Yeah, Charles
1: Fuller won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1982 for a soldier's play, which finally made it to Broadway 38 years later in a production that earned two Tony awards. The play was first staged in 1981 by the Negro Ensemble Company with a Mm -hmm. cast that included Denzel Washington. Fuller was only the second black playwright to win the Pulitzer for drama, Charles Edward Gordon, won in 1974, No Place to Be Somebody. And Fuller's plays often examine racism and sometimes draw on his background as an army veteran. And he did die recently on October 4th, 2022, at the age of 83. So you're familiar with Charles Fuller's work. Uh, when you saw a soldier's story, what resonated sort of from the past and in some of the present work that you that you're doing now with the Black Veterans Project? People like you?
0: Will you just make us seem like
1: fools.
0: These whites down here, they won't see their duty or justice. They'll just see you. And once they do law, due process, it all goes. What is the point of continuing an investigation that can't possibly get at the truth? It's, it's funny that you say that because when I saw The Soldier Story, I didn't like it. I did really? not like the play. And not to say that it wasn't well acted, but there was just something about it that felt hollow. And I'm trying to remember exactly what, it, what exactly what it was, but I remember I had Google cause I was like, I can't be the only person that thought this. And then Mary Baraka wrote an op-ed oh, yeah. on, on a soldier's play back uh, when it had its initial run and basically articulated all, this, all the reasons that I had felt internally about like why this play just felt like it just hit, missed the mark. Um, in some ways, and I can't, I can't, you know, recall exactly what, what, what he said, but go read Amiri Baraka's op-ed on the soldier's play, because I think it's a really interesting um, perspective, and I remember being in full agreement and alignment about what that perspective was, um, with respect to like that the play, because a lot of folks lo- love it, and I just remember right. leaving the theater feeling a little empty by it, and I don't remember exactly why.
1: Well, you know, I, I see a lot of theater, and so I always have some strong feelings mm. for certain plays that you know some folks love, and especially when it's a black play, and, and it could be a little complicated when everyone's like, "It's the greatest ever," and I'm just like, mm, "I've got notes." Um, so I know that you've you've made documentaries, and you know, your visual representation of some of your work is a really important component. Have you ever thought about writing a play though, to either talk mm-hmm. about some of your experiences or a composite? Ah, uh, play to put together these experiences of other veterans that you've been uh, researching and speaking to for the Black Veterans Project.
0: I've never thought about it. I mean, it seems like a really uh, worthwhile creative endeavor. So you never know, like you know, and maybe planting a little seed. I don't know. Um, but I, um, uh, no, I have not. I've not thought about play. I've, I've, I've certainly, I think, more recently, just been focused on like documentary filmmaking and obviously mm-hmm. like, and also just like archive and like archiving you know the stories that are existing right now but i think you know maybe catch me in 10 years and see what i want to do with those stories once i've caught them because i'll probably my my wheels will start spinning i think at some point once i want yeah right now we're in the midst of standing up our first documentary feature which being being produced by erica alexander it's i know uh, tell us
1: a little bit more (laughs) about that that documentary and this is erica alexander from living single uh also pam from the cosby show i mean she's She's done some really great work, uh, you know, in television and movies over time. I mean, she was a little girl when she first started acting. So tell us more about this documentary that you all are working on.
0: So keeping it at super high level and not giving away too much, uh, it, it, it's, it's essentially about a untold American uh, hero, a woman, one of the only women inducted into the Intelligence Hall of Fame, uh, only Black women, one of only three Black women inducted into the Military Hall of Fame, so that's a hint-hint. Um, and, uh, yeah, we seek to tell her story and, about, and her impact specifically around uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, mm. So thinking really about like kind of retelling uh, the 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 story of Vietnam and the ways in which America remembers it through this woman's experience, and um, in, in how she it could have impacted the war, um, if not for particular things happening. So yeah. Now
1: there's so many heroes, known and unknown. How do you all go about choosing who you want to to highlight and honor?
0: Oh well, I mean, I think that. As of right now it's been so much of our work has been in focused on policy advocacy and research and so we're actually just now starting to stand up how we do storytelling right so it's like um and then how we can use that storytelling to then hopefully influence um other uh, policy uh inevitably uh, I think this particular story uh was brought to me so I I'm just I have a privilege to be helping to produce it I'm not directing it. It's being directed by someone by the name of Christina Brown Fisher and um, Lisa Janae, two really, really good friends. Um, And uh, she's a journalist and she's been working on this story for the better part of two years. So um, I think, you know, there's so many amazing stories. So Mm -hmm. at this particular point, it's kind of where we can develop synergy with other creatives that want to tell it, especially depending on scale right? Like this is our first documentary feature. So that's, that's a big endeavor, right? Um, and so, um, so yeah, it's, it depends on the scale of the story and how, you know, in and, and, and kind of where we can get community support, um, where we can collaborate. Um, and obviously there are smaller scale stories that I, I, I've been engaged in helping to proliferate and tell and working with media partners or helping place folks in media and stuff like that, which is, it's smaller, it's easier, right? Right. Like setting up a film project is a lot. So yeah.
1: We'll promise you'll come back when the documentary is ready to rock and roll. And so we can, we can discuss it and demystify it. Okay. You've been listening to the blackest questions with Richard Brookshire from the black veterans project. We'll be right back. Okay. We're back and talking to Richard Brookshire. Richard, are you ready for question number five? Yes. In the war of 1812, Cochran's proclamation of 1814 offered Americans who joined British forces freedom and land in British colonies. Thousands of enslaved African-Americans heeded the call. Several settled in Trinidad, established enduring communities, and were known as... Oh,
0: I heard this the other day. Oh, Lord. What were they known as? Wait, I want to get... I only have 10 seconds, but I ain't going to get this. Okay. Um...
1: <laughs> they were known as Americans.
0: Americans, yes. yes the yeah.
1: Americans were African American Marines of the War of 1812, former African enslaved people who fought for the British against the U.S. in the mm-hmm. Corps of Colonial Marines, and then after post-war service in Bermuda, were established as a community in the south in- of Trinidad in mm-hmm. 1815 and 1816. They mm-hmm. were settled in an area populated by French-speaking Catholics and retained cohesion as an English-speaking Baptist community. It's sometimes said that the term Americans derived from the local patois, but as many Americans have long been in the habit of dropping the initial A, it seems more likely that that's what happened with the new settlers, and they brought that pronunciation with them from the United States. And so some of the company villages and land grants established back then still exist today in Trinidad. And Mm. so the diaspora has so much history. Mm. Had you heard about this military history of the Americans before?
0: No, I hadn't, I had not. And until I came across, I think I came across a tweet. And so I, I found out about <laughs> it in that tweet. I was like, I've always learned something new. But I will say, just shout out to my mom. She did a, uh, she just completed her her master's degree in African-American religious studies at Xavier. And she wrote a paper about um, basically the, the kind of build out of the, uh, of the Catholic church in Savannah, but it was basically brought to Savannah by Haitians who had served um, in the American Revolutionary War. So, huh. so yeah, and they basically helped to propagate Catholicism in the region. So, um, oh, that's fascinating. So, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I didn't know I had known that Haitians had served in the American Revolution. So, we've been here since the beginning, helping y'all. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, so yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, have you done much international travel in the Caribbean? You know, I know that you you've spent time in Haiti, but you know, have you traveled around the Caribbean either for work or for pleasure
0: yeah. uh,
1: or for military service?
0: Not yet. Um, I, I had a step I had Jamaican stepfather growing up, so I'm very familiar with Jamaica and Jamaicans. I grew up in South Florida, which is a bastion of just mm-hmm. West Indians. So I by proximity, but I've not actually spent time um significantly throughout the Caribbean. My partner's a uh, Bayesian, so I get to learn a lot about about Barbados and just kind of like the 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 wider Caribbean um you know by way of being in love with him so okay. so yeah 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 so but yeah nah well I mean I'm going and- to Bermuda though I'm going to Bermuda for a wedding uh, oh next month so that'll be my first time leaving the United States since I've got back from Afghanistan but here we are so okay next, well grade.
1: you know it's so interesting because you know our listeners know I have to leave America to be mm-hmm. able to stay in America you stay you, you stay, stay
0: gone
1: <laughs> yeah I mean my passport stays <laughs> hot but, um, well, you know, just like Mark Twain, Mark Twain had to leave America pretty frequently so he could understand and write about America uh, mm-hmm. more succinctly. And I I have that same spirit. I mm-hmm. have to be away from this country several yeah. times a year, even, uh, to better understand mm-hmm. my placement in American society as a Black person, as a woman, as an American. I got to get off this mountain. Yeah, get off uh, rock. And sort of yeah. literally, you know, sometimes being an island looking at it.
0: Yeah, no, it's so interesting that you say that because I was talking to my partner about, about about that too. It's like, I, you know, yeah, anyways, but yeah, just thinking about it, sometimes I get almost like writer's block or, or the, your mind gets so overwhelmed by not only just having to exist in America, but having to study and look at it and then engage and interface and, and live in it. And that sometimes it could be of utility to like actually step away from it to yeah. kind of take a look from the outside, not something I've applied, but maybe you know, perhaps it's some mentorship happening right now on this podcast. Has me hey, to always,
1: him. you know, as, as my students know, it's like once, <laughs> once I'm a mentor, I'm a mentor forever. You're right. stuck with me. Um, right. Okay. We're you're going gonna to take, you take me
0: on one of your trips one day. That's <laughs> what
1: do you know what that's a promise okay that's a promise uh maybe it'll be your post documentary celebration trip we'll go to some okay. and, and just you know uh drink cocktails and celebrate okay we're going to take a quick commercial break and when we come back we're going to play the black lightning round okay richard before i let you out of here we got time for black lightning so this is uh the part of the program where there are no right answers this is just for you to tell me uh, how you feel about particular topics. If you had to choose, which was better, your time at Morehouse or your time at Columbia?
0: Now you already know. that no, Morehouse.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Favorite James Baldwin book?
0: Mm, with a Fire Next Time.
1: Okay. Mm. Favorite genre of music?
0: Ooh, R&B. and b okay. uh, 70s, soul R&B, I can always.
1: Okay. Bring it on back. <laughs> Favorite meal?
0: Favorite meal? That's hard. I like to eat uh, some some kind of dessert, uh, some kind of chocolatey goodness.
1: Okay. Well, then this leads into the last question: favorite sweet tooth snack.
0: I would say some kind of cake, some kind of cake, any kind of cake.
1: Any <laughs> <laughs> kind of cake. It gotta be <laughs> like
0: it has to be moist. And it has to be it like has like a nice creamy center.
1: <laughs> okay. Ooh, like a, a nice chocolate torte or something. Yeah.
0: Some. You know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, So, Richard, I just want to thank you for joining us at The Blackest Questions. I want to thank you for your service. And I want to thank you for starting the Black Veterans Project so we can all learn more about uh, the contributions of African Americans uh, in our armed services across time, since there have been so many great Black folks who have fought for and defended this country uh, for decades and decades. I, I guess in almost every war that we've ever endeavored. Uh, and this this country loves being at war. So mm-hmm. um, thank you for your research and your scholarship and your patience as you dig through uh, the crates to, to bring all these stories to light. And especially promise me that you'll come back to the Blackest Questions and play with us again. Anytime. All right. You all have been listening to The Blackest Questions. This show is produced by Sasha Armstrong, Akilah Shedrick, and Jeffrey Trudeau. Regina Griffin is our managing editor of podcasts. And if you like what you heard, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And please download the Grio app and listen and watch many more great shows. Thanks for listening.